ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Sue Chili, welcome. I mean, this is this is unusual for me because normally on this podcast I interview pop stars, but I've widened the perspective of it, and now I'm interviewing people who have sort of been witnesses to things in popular culture and been around certain people. And I would say that you're very well known for probably two things to the wider public. One as being the muse of Lucy and Freud, being in a couple of paintings, and one of them at the time when it was sold, was the most expensive painting in history. That's one side. And the other side, of course, is being a a, a friend um, of Lee Bowery until his death in the 90s, and then writing a book about his life. Um, So these two things really appealed to me in seeing you again, obviously. And obviously, it's just lovely to see you again. And in my (laughs) mind, I am a pop star. That's it. Yes. Why not? My favourite thing. I love pop stars. I'm obsessed with them. (laughs) But I want to start with um, you growing up and your family. Were your family culturally interested in in any way? What sort of surroundings were you brought up in? Well, I was thinking about that this morning, bizarrely. Um, Very nice, middle-class family. No trouble, no strife. They were so nice and so good. I don't think my mum's done anything wrong in her whole life. You know, they were just such nice parents. And we had, you know, we had all that. Until I was six, I lived in a big house in Paddington with my auntie and uncle and my cousins as well. So that was lovely. So I had ready-made friends. My nan and pop would come every week or we'd go and visit them. And it was just lovely, really. And I can't really complain. But, you know, when I'm out with my friends and they're all going on about their terrible upbringings, I always feel a bit left out and I have to say, well, I can't really complain. It was lovely. <laughs> well, that's nice to <laughs> hear. was a bit odd later on in life. Not me, but, you know. But, um, yeah, but, so just a lovely being taken to museums, being taken up to London, always being entertained, but not but a lot of time left to do what we wanted to do, you know. And they were their, their thinking was very open or was it conservative and closed? No, they were quite... Um, well, they voted liberal. Didn't mean they were liberal, but yeah, my mum was quite prudish and everything. But because she was so simple in life, I could get away with murder, and she didn't realise what terrible mischief I was up to. 
<laughs> I mean, I I heard that you were fascinated when you were living in Paddington with the prostitutes that were were down the street. Can you tell me oh, a little bit about that? Yeah, so I used to look out. I mean, I lived there till I was six, but I loved it. And I used to um, sit out of our window, and we were on the corner of London Road and Sussex Gardens. And I was obsessed with Black Mariahs when they come along and pick up the prostitutes. I didn't really know what prostitutes were, and drunks. I knew what drunks were falling flat in the street. And they used to hang around outside our house, and I just thought they were quite glamorous. <laughs> but my cousin, who's the same age as me, she lived there exactly the same. She hasn't got that strange obsession. <laughs> I mean, it does seem that you were always fascinated with the, let's call it the other side of life. I mean, for us, for you and for me, it's also a normal side of life. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah, not that it's different. Normal. Yeah, okay. It is normal, but then I realised that 95% of the world, it isn't normal. <laughs> I always find I have trouble fitting in with proper people, if you know what I mean. So what's your own personal connection in your youth to art? Well, I trained to be, well, I loved art. I loved drawing. I was always making my mum give me and my sister drawing competitions, which I was one because I was four years older than her. But anyway, <laughs> I like winning. Um, and then... Um, I remember when I was 11, we went on a school trip to Holland. I can, I've never been so excited in my life. So I've never been abroad. And we went to the Rich Museum. And I kind of fell in love with that painting, The Night Watch by Rembrandt. And I bought the book. I think I've still got it, the book of Rembrandt. I must have read it about 10,000 times. I still can't remember anything in it still. but uh, And then I studied art A-level, which I got a grade A. And then I went to teacher training college for some unknown reason. I don't know why I went. It was so boring and trained to be an art teacher. But to be honest, the three years that I was there, just like a blur to me. That I had a proper boyfriend and, you know, it, I just knew it wasn't for me really deep down. But I just, I'm always one, I stick things out, so I stuck it out. What did your parents want you to be? They're not fussy like that at all. No, never really didn't mind. You know, they're never ones to force us to do our homework. I mean, we got told off for messing about, but they weren't, like, pushy or anything. But um, I remember going to a school um, open evening one night or something, and the art teacher said, yes, I could imagine Susan being an artist in later life, which actually turns out to be true. But I think my dad was a bit horrified about me starving away in a garret. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, he obviously uh, was a bit shocked later on in life with Lucy and Freud then. Um, well, he did actually go to Lucy and Garrett. I can tell you about that later. Oh, OK. Yeah. Well, um, you moved back to London. You moved to Kentish Town and you started work at the unemployment office, didn't you? Oh. Yeah, because yeah. I went when I left college, I went to sign on. And they went, oh, we've got jobs and job centres. So, and I'm so simple. And I don't like arguing. I went, oh, all right then. Stayed there almost 40 years. I mean, it's amazing that, you know, this. there is a contradiction in a sense, but it's only because of my thinking. It's not maybe not a contradiction. No, but it, it, you it, know, everyone's confused by my life. But I really, I'm so pleased because a lot of people I know are very airy-fairy, arty-farty. They don't really understand real life and don't understand the enjoyment you can get from regular people, you know. But I've got, I'm in both camps, which I've always liked, but neither camp really understood the other one. <laughs> what What was your introdu introduction to the gay nightclub scene in London? And how did it come about? 
Well, funny enough, I started work at the job centre in Camden Town, which was a great eye-opener to me because I'd never seen such filth and squalor in my life. <laughs> and the people, that's the people who work there, not the people coming in. <laughs> anyway. And then there was a boy there working, attractive young boy. I thought, oh, he's very nice. We got on very well. Turns out he was a homosexual, the first one I'd ever met. <laughs> and not the last. Not the last. And funny enough, I saw him a couple of weeks ago. I haven't seen him for a long time, but he came down. And I always say to him, you're the first gay I ever met. You've got a lot to answer for. <laughs> so then, why I did mean, you like gay clubs? Because you went, you know, if you... I mean, I, I knew lots of women, obviously, as a gay man going to gay clubs, and then my friends would go to gay clubs. And lots of women felt uh, a certain freedom uh, oh. of being there because you're not hit on, you're actually talked to, you make friends. You know what I mean? It's something different. But there was always straight boys there. And the straight boys who went were kind of open-minded, if you know what I mean, because that's why they went to the gay bar. And also, they must have realised it was easy to get off with girls in the gay bar. Because the girls were quite probably, you know, me, I can say I was a bit of a goer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you were easy, were you? That's not the right tone for it. And, um, I was, so it's okay. <laughs> I'll be fussy. And I think that just the general gay culture, it sort of rubbed, it was just, it's just what I liked. What clubs were you going to at that time? Oh, I think the very, very keen at lasers in bolts at Turnmills. No, not at Turnmills. What's it called? Turnpike Lane. I love going there until, unfortunately, I got banned for um, stealing drinks. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I went all the way on the bus. They kicked they, and they saw me and went, no, you're banned. I had to go home on the bus on my own. Cried all the way home. The thing about lasers was that they had two groups of people, didn't they? I mean, I used to go there because I actually lived yeah. in, at one point in Stamford Hill, I think it was. Yeah, so yeah. I used to go there. I can't remember what night it was, whether it was a Saturday night Friday or Wednesday. Thing. Friday night. Okay, yeah. And and then there would be this tr the trendy crowd, and then there would be the sort of... Regular gays. Yeah. Yeah, and it was an odd mixture, really. I know, but, I, but in those days, it was a bit more like that because there wasn't so many clubs, was there? What I always liked was a suburban disco, you know, like in the country or somewhere, because there was only one disco. Everyone was there, the goths, the freaks, the punks, the regular folk. That was my favourite. Um, and also I used to go to Cha-Cha's in heaven. Oh, Cha-Cha's was my favourite club. I mean, it was amazing, wasn't it? It was at the back of heaven. It was a small club, but it connected. You could go one way to heaven, but I think heaven couldn't go the other way. I think there was something... Yeah. Like a weird thing in there, but Cha Cha's. How would you describe Cha Cha's? Because it was very, uh, very different and very, very original. And and also, you know, with Scarlet on the door, yeah, it, you know, it already made a first impression as you went in, didn't it? Yeah, and it was very sort of very basic, really. There wasn't fancy lights. So you had to go into heaven for the fancy lights, but it was just like everyone just hanging around, lying on the floor, all your friends chit chatting. I mean, I made all my friends there. Most of them are still friends with now. I mean, and one thing about that club was that it had a mixture of people who were going on to do something culturally important. You know, it had film directors or people that would become film directors, uh, fashion designers, you know, pop stars. The mixture was, was incredible. I know. And I always think um, I'm so lucky because I think in my life that everyone's had their life living around discos you know what I mean and that and those sort of people 
but they don't, do they? Like someone the other day told me I was the most famous person they'd ever met. And I was going, Oh, bless you. Oh, <laughs> tell me about who, who were in that club? Because as I mentioned, Scarlet on the door was of course at that moment known for being in the video church of the poison mind. She was a model yeah. and she was on the fr front of the face and was the ID girl. It was, you know, she was everywhere. And inside the club, who was inside the I club? I remember the Trindies, Paul Darbison, Jimmy Trindy, always in there. They used to do cabaret. And then, of course, there was like John Mabry, filmmaker, Bailey Walsh, um, who is now directing ABBA. How exciting is that? I'm beside myself that my friend has directed and invented that ABBA voyage. Um, Hazy Fantasia in there. I don't think... Spandau Ballet went to Cha Cha's. They were a bit too straight. But they used to be down the beat route. Um, of course, Philip Salon, Boy George, um, John Galliano, you know, the whole world of fashion. Body Mac, John Richmond, of them all, really. No, it was incredible. Um, when did you meet Lee? Was it there or somewhere yeah, else? Cha Cha's. Because um, in my house, I lived this house in Kentish Town, it was an old squatty house. and Everyone there was like mad. And my friend knew Stephen Luscombe from Le Monde. And so he said, oh, you must come to Charter's. You'd really love it. So I went and he introduced to me, Lee. And that was that. Yeah, but tell it, me, what, what was that? What was the connection? And what did you think know. of him? And well, to be honest, we have very similar upbringings. Because his mum and dad, mum and dad went to church. His mum and dad were in the Salvation Army. They were really nice and good, you know, good people and brought him up properly. Funny enough, I'm doing a lecture about him Sunday. So I've been rereading a lot of stuff I wrote about him yesterday. And, you know, they always wanted him to do well and encouraged him with, you know, nice, took him out, took him to museums. So we had that similar upbringing, but we're still really mischievous and naughty. I mean, same, I, we kind of knew we were being naughty. You know, like some people are just born naughty and they can't help it. It's just what not what it's just what they are. Well, we knew we were misbehaving. We found it amusing. I mean, he became such an iconic figure in London of that of that era, and of course later on, even you know more important after his death, I think. But um, when he came to London, he had a dream, didn't he? What was what was his initial dream? To be a fashion designer and go to all the trendy clubs. But it took him about two years, about a year, to actually meet someone who introduced him to that life. Because when I met him, he was just a regular boy. He wasn't Lee Bowery as such, if you know what I mean. He was just Lee going out, hanging around with Trojan and David Walls and trying to do fashions down Kensington Market. Yeah, I remember going down to Kensington Market because I'd met him and um, I'd actually... I can't remember what the first meeting was. I think it's when I snogged with him in the Camden Palace. Oh, you uh, devil! No, and it's actually it's a very good evening because I was with a group of friends and one of them set fire to Philip Salon's hair. I don't know if you were there that evening and his hair caught fire. <laughs> and we all got beaten up and thrown out the club very unceremoniously no. with Philip Salon telling us we would never, ever, ever get into another club in London in our lives. <laughs> so that was that was my first meeting with him. And it didn't end yeah. with sex, obviously, because we'd snogged in the club and had planned to meet afterwards, but it never happened. Um, but then I went down to Kensington Market because I wanted to do a feature on him for Capital Radio from where he lived in the, the block of flats. Yeah. Where was that exactly? That was... Um, Farrell House in Ronald Street, just off Commercial Road. What, shop, 
what shocked me by that point, um, he had really sort of moved into dressing up and wearing his outfits and going out. Yeah. And um, the locals literally stoned him when we came out, when we came out of his flat and went to get a taxi, we were pelted with stones. And the aggression of the youth, just to someone who was dressing up and, and being ultimately really fashionable, was a real shock to me. Well, you know that the local cab company, when they got a new driver, they used to send them to pick him up to, to their initiation. <laughs> How did he deal with all that? Because there were two sides. There was an adulation side. And there was a very heavy aggression side. How did he deal with that? I don't think he ever really affected him because he just was above it, if you know what I mean. And I think he really thought any attention was good attention, <laughs> however rotten it was and unpleasant, you know. But that's what... So I don't think I ever heard him moaning or groaning about it. You know, he was never one for gay rights or anything like that. He just was what he was, you know what I mean? He didn't... Very modern, I think. Was he driven? Yeah. After he got his diagnosis of HIV, much more driven. Because before that, he'd often spent, you know, with a hangover, just lying on the sofa and we'd be on the phone all day just chatting and doing nothing. But once he got his diagnosis, he worked so much harder. So he thought, I haven't got much long to do what I want to do, so I better get on and do it. So he did. Well, that's but amazing. So that never... limited time really hit him. Yeah, very much so. And he didn't want anyone to know. He didn't want anyone to feel sorry for him. He didn't want people to go, oh, he's only doing that because he's sick in the head, you know, things like that. He just wanted to be accepted for him, not for what he had. I mean, it's hard for anyone today to really understand how much AIDS was prevalent. I know. In the 80s. I mean, we don't, you know, it's like, okay, with COVID, it's sort of then you sort of realise how bad it can be. And then, but AIDS was this thing. And I, I remember, like, knowing people and then not seeing them and then talking to someone in a club and asking, oh, where's so-and-so? And they would say, oh, don't you know he died? And this uh -huh. would be this sort of continuous thing over years of people also, you know, disappearing. How did you deal with that period yourself? Well... You know, it was quite frightening, wasn't it? You know, when it came out. And it was horrible that it was more... I think with COVID, because anyone could get it, there wasn't that nasty picking on people. But because AIDS was mainly gay people, people go, thought if they touched them, they would catch it. It was petrifying, you know. And, um, you know, you, but, you know, horrible things. You can't... I'm a sort of person, I forget about them after a while. I forget how horrible it was. I like to be cheerful in life. But, yeah, it was horrible. And I mean, I spent a lot of time going to funerals. It was like a social life. Whose funeral are we going to this week? But, yeah, it was horrible. And I've been sick. You know, several people I saw a couple of days before they died and that. It was so horrible. But I, don't, I had a flatmate born to lose. And he had AIDS as well. But he wouldn't admit it. Oh, but that was a terrible to do. And Lee used to say to me, it's practice for when I die. Well, thanks. Oh, so God. I was really involved in it all. But I felt kind of, I mean, once I phoned up Terence Higgins because I needed some help, and they were so horrible to me, I really took against them. <laughs> you know, I was only going, I'm worried, I know my flat, I think my flatmate's got AIDS. 
but I don't know what to do about it and all this. And they went, oh, it's his business, just leave it alone. I'm going, oh, thanks. You know, I was only trying to be kind. I wasn't going to be horrible to him. I mean, I remember, you remember, you know, you mentioned lasers and I interviewed, and I can't remember who I interviewed, but I had to go back to that club to interview someone in the club as a location. And, well, the club had stopped in that sense, but the the owner was there and I asked him, and this was in the early 90s, and I asked him why he shut bolts or lasers or whatever it was called at that stage when we were going to it. And he just said to me, straight, everyone died. And this it was such a shock to hear that and and you know and uh, i mean i know you know he said to me that he'd given up going to funerals because he'd been to so many i know and it was something that really decimated you know the whole um gay uh community or what we ever want to call it at that period i didn't hang around in the world of Els court i think there you know all the clones and that i don't think there are any left from what i heard you know yeah, no, I know. It was horrendous. Well, one night I invited, or one day I invited Lee Trojan and there was another guy David who... Walls. Sorry? David Walls. Yes. So I invited, invited those three round. They came on the 171 bus to... Uh, oh, God, where did I live? Somewhere Tottenham Way. And mm. I did a film with them. I was thinking, you know, like, I'm going to be a film director. So I borrowed a... a Small camera and start yeah. to f- and film them eating cream cakes and doing the ironing. That was my big idea at the time. Oh yeah, very <laughs> on... mod, very avant garde. <laughs> very avant garde. Yeah. Trouble was, I recorded it on an um, on a cassette, an eight track cassette, I think they were called. And my boyfriend at the time taped Terminator over it, so I lost it, and no, I was no. I could have killed him. It would have been such a brilliant thing to it have was. today. <laughs> but as you know, Lee was also. Um, involved in my show because I had a chat show on MTV, Take the Blame. With Tabby Glitter, was it not? Well, it was, yes, it was with all types of <laughs> people. <laughs> and, um, well, I don't, it, it, I think I it told you the story for the book, but basically what happened was that Lee was there every week and one week, um, Godly and Cream were supposed to be on the show and they yeah. turned up early and the moment they saw Lee, they absolutely freaked out. Because they had been at the fridge either the night before or a few nights before yeah. at an AIDS benefit. And Lee had done a performance there. Can you tell me about that performance and what well, happened? Well, I wasn't there, but I feel like I was because I've heard about it so many times. He invented this plan where he was going to squirt water all over the audience from his rear end. So he wrote in Bailey Walsh, the one who's now directed... Abba than Voyage. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're going to be really pleased to know about this. <laughs> oh, don't worry. He's told his story. <laughs> There's worse things than that. And so um, Lee comes on on Bailey's shoulders and he squirted all this water up his bottom beforehand that he was going to then... Squ- I mean, he was very physical with his body. Then he was going to squirt this clean water out over the audience. But unfortunately... He didn't realise that it acted like an enema. So when he squirted it out, it was like poo and all that went over the audience. Well, it didn't just go <laughs> over the audience. It went directly over oh, Kevin Godley uh, and Lowell Cream. Oh, did it? And yes. And it went all uh, over, Bailey. And they, I think they were wearing 
well, they were at the start, white suits. <laughs> I don't know what colour they were at the end. Because I went out for dinner with Kevin Godley a few years ago, and I mentioned that to him, and he said, oh, my God, I have I put that in a corner of my mind, never to remember it again. <laughs> well, I never knew they were there, so that's an added bonus to add to the story. But then there was a letter in either, I think, the pink paper. I went to the bridge. I was horrified at what I saw when Lee Barry squirted this all over us, signed an angry lesbian. Lee had written it himself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how brilliant. He used to say, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not, it's not uh, how many inches, it's the size of the column or something like that to do yeah. with press <laughs> in that case. Um, the other thing about that show, which I think was really fascinating, and for me it sums up the 1980s, when that show nearly got to the end of its run, MTV had said to me, oh, it's a little bit gay. And I was thinking, well, hang on a minute, fuck you. I'm gay, yeah. Lee's gay. I'm going to invite everyone who's gay on the show. So I invited the communards, Julian Clary, and Fanny the Wonder Dog, who apparently is a lesbian, and Nina um, Nina Hagen, who I thought was a lesbian and isn't. So and Banana after... they're not no, they were, Yes, they were brilliant. But, but the... they're quite camp. They're quite camp, yeah. But they, uh, what happened was that um, the managing director of the channel screamed, get those faggots off my channel. Now, this is in 1988. And for me, that really summed up that era of the 80s. We lived in a bubble when we went out. Yeah. But in our work and in the other parts of our life, uh, if if you were gay, it wasn't acceptable, was it? So for you to be in that scene was a, was also a good statement. I know. Whereas now you can't move for gays on the telly. I mean, some programs I look at, you know, look at the people on the telly. About half, over half of them are gay. It's all the rage. Everyone, all every woman wants a gay best friend now. You could give a few away. You got so many. My friend, oh, I want to. I went. I've got plenty. Which one do you want? <laughs> <laughs> now Lucian Freud was he'd gone to see Lee at the Anthony Dufay gallery hadn't he that was that was his first connection with him yeah. when did you hear of Lucian's interest at first I presume in Lee well I think did I I don't know if I saw him at Anthony Dufay I didn't know he was so I might have done I don't know but then Lee told me he was working for him and I hadn't even, heard, I said, I hadn't even heard of Lucy and Freud. But you know, when you sometimes you hear of something, and then suddenly you find out everything about them. So you read the paper, and their names mentioned. So you get so I quickly learned who he was, and yeah, Lee, oh, he changed his life working for him, really, because it was someone really proper. It was like really important, sort of, in the art world. So did Lee's mentality change as well at that moment? Oh, yeah. yeah, he got much more um, posh. I can say that word because he ended up talking when he spent time with people his voice changed so he ended up talking quite posh rather thought he was rather better than everyone else in a way <laughs> and how did Lee or did Lee rope you in was that the way it happened yeah because Lee always liked to um, encourage people in life he was very good like that he liked to help other people get on and achieve whatever and he thought I, I shouldn't really work in the job centre so um he put the idea into Lucian's head that he should paint me because he's he's quite clever and he realised that Lucian liked to think he made up his own mind. You know, to be honest, they were both control freaks, but Lee had to get me into the conversation so Lucian would think it was his own idea. 
the paper, even though he'd never met me. <laughs> so anyway, I was invited to a lunch at the River Cafe, and obviously I passed because next week I was modelling. That's amazing. So how was it to model for Lucian Freud? I mean, he had a terrible reputation at one point. I don't know. Well, Lee was going, he'll be after you. He loves all the women. He was never after. I wasn't his cup of tea. And he certainly wasn't mine. So I think it was easier for me because there wasn't that sexual frisson in the air. You know, because a lot of his models are all in love with him and it was all very tortured. But I was just, oh, all right, hi. You know, I just talked to him like another person. But it wasn't like people something think, oh, we go there, oh, hey, let's start work on the most famous painting in the world. But it wasn't like that at all. To me, it was just like going to work, really, with the added bonus of a bit of nice food and a chit-chat. Were you and Lee painted always separately? Was there always, you, know, yeah, you were never started, at the same time? The first painting, we were meant to be in together, and he started with Lee in it, but then he got a job doing some play, the homosexual, so he had to go away a lot, so Lee kicked him out and changed him into his dog <laughs> on the bed. So evening in the studio, it's me, Nicola, and a dog, but the dog was previously Lee. <laughs> and um, so, but we weren't there at the same time, if you know what I mean. He'd do a day and then I'd do a night, and we put a little note. We were both sitting on the same sofa that was full of holes. So he put little notes in the holes and things like that for each other. Then he'd ring me up and tell me, and he'd tell me terrible lies about what he'd done with Lucian. And the next day I thought, no, no, I never did that. No, no. No, Lee was quiet. He he would always come in and tell gossip about people, which when he used to come into the show before we went on air and talk about people, and you never really knew whether it was true or not true. It was always something that could have been. 80% of it would be made up. 80% made up. I mean, after he died, I was work, you know, working in nightclubs. Someone came downstairs, I screamed. Lee had told me they died, still alive. But the things he used to make up, it was a, the imagination was amazing. Now, these um, sittings that you had to do for the for this painting, how long were they and over what time period? Right, well, the day pic... I started off doing a night picture, and that was about, like, half six to about one in the morning. He would have gone on longer, but I said, no, I've got to go up to work. One o'clock's the latest I'm working. So that that was the first one. But then all the others were day pictures. And that I'd have to be there about half seven and I'd leave about half three. And that was like two or three days a week. Then sometimes if he was really desperate to do a bit, he'd ask me to take a week off work and I'd go every day. Were you the... always aware of how the painting was building up? Oh yeah, because it was because they're so huge, I could see it the whole time. It, I've tried to explain this to people a lot. He didn't, you know, usually think a painter stands behind the painting and looks over because it was so big, he couldn't. So it was on the side, so he could see the painting and see me at the same time. So, of course, I could see the painting. I could see every stroke he put on it. Did you ever say anything? <coughs> Not really. I you go, didn't really comment about what he was no, doing. I, used to go, I go, can't you do a bit of floor when I'm not here? Go, no, it's not the same without you. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. How was it for you 
you just said that you know you would do a night thing to about one thirty in the morning, and then you say I have to go home because I've got to go to work in the morning. So there you are being painted by one of the world's most famous artists, yeah. and then the next day you're going to work at the unemployment office. There is yeah. a sort of there's, dichotomy there's there. A couple of nights later, I'll be working on the door of the wag club. You know, I'd I'd work hard for about two years. I never had a day off work, so I worked Saturdays and Sundays as well. Um, it was just. But I like that. That's why I think that I know about lots of things. And, I, you know, I've got a wide... I don't know a lot about anything. But I know a little about a lot of things. <laughs> and um, I like that I've got that varied life. Nice not to be stuck in a box, isn't it? Well, one of the things that Lee was involved in in the mid-80s, I think it was about 85, was Taboo, which was sort of a seminal club in London, in Leicester Square, in Maximus, Club Maximus, I think it was called. It was. And this was a club which was so popular that I remember, how, you know, you s stood outside with this massive crowd trying to get in, trying to get the attention of someone on the door so you could make a run for it to get in. Um, how did you, what was that club like for you? How did you view it? And in, in hindsight, how would you say you would describe it? Well, on the first night, I wasn't there because I was being operated on in hospital. I like that story. I do ovarian cyst. <laughs> so as the club opens, I was on the operating theatre being cut open. <laughs> and then next day, Lee came to see me. He told me it was a fantastic success. It was so wonderful. Everyone was there. Found out there was about 30 people there. <laughs> but word got out and news spread and... It became a big success. And you, I worked on the door every other week, cashier, and you said it was hard to get in once. I went, one week I went when I wasn't working. Such a big crowd, couldn't even get in myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not this a and I couldn't really be bothered fighting my way through and going, oh, let me in. So I went home. There was this wonderful story, and it's it's a tragic story and terrible, but it's one you know that made me laugh, and I never knew if it was true about a girl who wanted to get in and she was, Lee told the story in a magazine that she was permanently turned away. And the one night that she would have got in was when she got crushed in the crowd. Was that a true story? That was rubbish, wasn't it? I'm surprised you didn't say there was someone stuck in the air conditioning like the Studio 24. <laughs> no one was crushed in the crowd. <laughs> Why did he? Why do you think he just loved to make up stories? Was it just playing with people, or did he have a purpose? Just entertainment. It was to entertain people, I think. But you know, I've read bits of his time. The lies he used to tell, even like as a young boy, um, when he was in London, he met. He worked in Burger King. He used to make up these terrible lies, great long sagas. To be honest, I think he should have been an author because he was so good at making things up and could remember, you know, the tales he told. And carry on with them all. Yeah. Um, do you think he fulfilled, by the time of his death, he really fulfilled his creative promise? No, not at all. No, there was so much more to do. I mean, his little group was just, uh, his band were just coming, but they would have never had mainstream success. I mean, one of our main arguments when I told him, I go, you're not going to be on top of the pops with that group and that song. But, um, but no, there was a lot more going on. And then kind of like, I think, because he died before the internet and everything. And so he couldn't didn't reach so many people. You know what I mean? He was like, 
And they were so, like, you know, like, um, I mean, even I've worked for Fendi. I'm not even a fashion designer. So imagine what big fashion houses would have used him and things like that. I mean, just to say what the song was, because in case people want to look it up, it was Useless Man and the band was called Minty at that point. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, those lyrics. <laughs> yeah, they're not exactly Radio 1 friendly. No but fantastic. Um, he was also, he he very much moved into doing performance art as well, didn't he? Yeah. Um, and he did this um, fantastic piece with Nicola. And I think there's a video of it, and I think it's at Heaven, I'm not really sure. Well, there's loads of videos of it, he did it several times. Uh, did you see it live? Yeah, and he didn't tell me what it was. He goes, come on, you've got to come, you'll be surprised, you'll be really surprised. And I couldn't tell, believe it. Tell me what happened. Well, he came waddling onto the stage with this old lady curly wig on, an old lady big frumpy suit. But he was enormous. He has a huge stomach, these funny little high heel shoes. Then he was singing and dancing and shrieking. And then he laid back. His fellow went, grabbed his stomach, go, ah! Lay back, waved his legs in the air. Then suddenly he had these tights on with a Velcro gusset. And that spread open. And now we got Nicola, naked Nicola, with an umbilical cord made out of sausages, covered in red paint to look like afterbirth or placenta. It was amazing. And then he fed her, you know, like a mother bird feeds her babies into her mouth. And he'd swallowed all the time. So he was dancing around with Nicola on his stomach and cold vegetable soup in his mouth that he then spat into her mouth. It looked like he was feeding her. It was amazing. You know, you're so shocked when you see it. You're just thrilled because it was so brilliant. <laughs> this is so amazing. Um, I know that it must be a very, it must have been a very difficult period for you. But because you've written a book and because you've probably had to go through it a number of times, um, and being around someone when they die, and being around, you know, he was your best friend, and and he's dying. When you look back at that period now. How how do you look back at it, and how do you feel about that time? Well, it was hard, because I've been through it already about a year and a half previously with my Black Man Born to Lose, who was a pop star, singer of Department S. And then um, it was just, I can't really say. It was, like, scary, but at the same time, it was nice because I spent so much time with Lee chatting and talking to him, just him and me. You know, it was nice. I know it wasn't, I mean, we spent a lot of time crying, but we had spent a lot of time laughing as well. And um, and I was busy, you know, I was working for Lucy and I was working at a job centre, I was going to see Lee, I was going out. I didn't really have any time to stop and think. But um, I remember, you know, just walking down the road and uh, you're not sobbing, but you know, like tears just come out of your face. I like that feeling. Yeah, so it was like... And then when he died, it was such a... I had so many people ringing me up. Cause nobody even knew he was ill because we kept it secret. And it all happened on New Year's Eve. So New Year's Eve, imagine everyone was buzzing that Lee had died and they had no idea he'd been ill. So they were really shocked. So you know, like some people, you knew they were ill. So when they died, it wasn't a shock. This was... And so I was kind of kept busy by all the goings on. 
I mean, you were asked to write an obituary, weren't you? And that was the thing that triggered the idea or triggered actually getting uh, a, a book deal you know, to, to write a book. I've never, I've never had ambition to do all these things, but I've done them by, mis by mistake. With no work on my part, if you know what I mean. When you think of all these people sit desperate to get books written and published... So, yeah, so The Guardian said to me, would you write an obituary for Lee? Which I thought was a bit weird, but I thought, I can't do that. And I thought, yes, I can. Lee brought me to do it. I can do it. And so I did it. And although I wrote words like piss, poo, and vomit in it and everything, it went down very well. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think someone read it and or knew someone. Oh, yeah, this guy was, Robert Violet was doing the big coffee table book about Lee. And he went to Hodron Stoughton and said, then they said, oh, we don't really do this kind of book. We'd love to publish a story of Lee. Do you know anyone could write it? So she said, oh, she wrote the obituary. She'll be able to do it. So I just got asked to write a book. Bizarre, isn't it? Well, it's bizarre, but it also must have been an immense challenge at that time. Yeah. Um, and And also an emotional challenge. And I just wondered yeah. how important was it for you to be able to document his life? Oh, I think it was very enjoyable. Because I didn't do it in an intellectual way, as you can imagine. It was just a chit-chat. And those people, lots of people I know, it's the only book they've ever read. And they've read it several times because it's easy to read. It's got a lot of information in it, a lot of funny stories, very sad ending. And um, I don't know. I, don't, I didn't really know. I didn't plan. Luckily, I had a computer, which is hardly anyone had computers in those days. But I was one of the first people to get one, so I could... Oh, that was good. So I had that. That helped. And then I just thought, well, what should I do? Uh, so I just thought, I'll interview a few people. So I went and saw my friends. That was really enjoyable. And then it kind of wrote itself. Because I'm not very good at things in chronological order. I'm not very good at that. So I thought, oh, I'll do a chapter on sex, a chapter on fashion, a chapter on taboo. And it all fell into place. And I did cutting and pasting. Bob's your uncle. I wrote a book. What was what was the thing that you found out about Lee that you didn't know before that surprised you? I don't really know because I've forgotten. Because if I knew, I know it so much now, I wouldn't know that it was a shock to me to know it, if you know what I mean. I mean, you said that it had a very sad ending, obviously the death, but then it had this beautiful vision at the end of where he would be today. Could you tell me about that? What they said had to tell everyone he'd gone to Papua New Guinea. Yeah. I'm a pig farmer. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, it was this vision of him dancing with the natives in one, yeah, you know, one of his wonderful costumes and bossing yeah. them about, telling them what to do, being in charge. Yeah. But you know, he's left a legacy. I'll try and keep it alive for him. He would have been 60 last year. No, this year. Are you in contact with Nicola? Well, I see her, but we're not really, you know, I'm not, not friends with her, do you know what I mean? But, yeah, because there was that lovely exhibition earlier this year, wasn't there? And so um, I saw her there, you know, nice to see her. But, you know, like some people you just not you just don't get on with, they're not really, but, it's no, but I don't feel anything horrible towards her or anything. And if I see her, I'm happy to see her. I mean, just to explain to people, Nicola Bowery is married to Lee and Lee He's married her... For to sort of secure his work and legacy in a way that was part partly. Well, that, he told, it's so Mary. He told me it was so she'd be there when he was ill. She wanted to make because I think she had a boyfriend and he wanted to make sure 
that she'd be there to look after him when he was ill. But then he told her it's tax. He t- you know, he told people all different reasons why he did it. But anyway, he did do it. Now, after Lee's death... Despite was... asking oh, me to marry him. Say that again, I didn't hear that. Despite asking me to marry him several times and planning, if I was 40 and not married, he'd marry me. But by then, I knew he was married to Nicola. <laughs> but he didn't know that I knew she was married <laughs> So I played him his own game. Bloody hell, it's confusing. I'll I know. It was when we got the first day, I took him to the hospital. He went, Sue, Sue, I've got to tell you, I've got to tell you something. I went, it's all right. I know what it is. He went, you bitch. He knew all along. I went, yeah, I can keep a secret, but I kept his secret as well. So, I mean, that period after Lee died, and the, then there, then there was a book. Uh, I don't know what you were doing between then and the day that the painting, the one painting was sold for the, what, how much was it? 37 million, was it? Something like that? Yeah. That, what? and that, that day, I don't know what you were doing between that period, but can you tell me about that day when that painting was sold and how that then changed your life? It completely changed my life. I was working away in the job centre, minding my own business. And it was on four floors in Denmark Street, you know, the pop music street so that was very nice i like working in pop music street and then um what happened was someone rang from downstairs go oh, the evening santa to come to see you and i'm going what do you mean i thought it must be something about work you know about job centers or something so i went down to see them and oh did you know that your painting's going to be sold it's going to be the most expensive painting in the world i went what how do you know it's not even sold yet it's a bit bizarre they went oh yeah chris has told us they always give the heads up i went hadn't even told me. Oh, you know when you're quite shocked that you're so inconsequential to Christie's, they don't even bother telling you. And I just thought, oh, and I thought it was like maybe candy camera, it's a joke. And I went up, I ran up, I said, oh, we're sending the photographer around. So I'll go upstairs and put some makeup on. I got on the internet quick, nothing there. A bit odd, isn't it? So anyway, I had the picture taken, that was fine. And then next day, the f- I woke up in the morning. I was going, do you remember Tallulah? No, a stately homosexual. It was his funeral. And um, that morning, I was still in a bit of a buzz going, what's going on? It's weird. I haven't heard anything. And then suddenly my phone didn't stop. It was all these papers, newspapers. I think even Christie's might have actually phoned. To say, I think they wanted me to do something for them. That was it. And... Um, and then we went to the funeral, and then we were the, the do afterwards at the Green Carnation in Soho, and everyone was waving the Metro, or the, I think it was the Metro, and I was on the front page, Job Centre Clark, and I was going, it's a bit weird. And from that moment, my life was never the same. <laughs> what did you think of the title? Because also the title sort of plays against the piece in a way. What benefit supervisor? Yeah, sleeping. Yeah, he told me to ask work if I was allowed to use it, that name. Asked them, they went, no. He still used it. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't ask anyone official, just my manager, you know, because oh, I don't think you should, but none of their business really, is it anyway? But I just think it's, you know, I wish it was called Glamorous Lady Sleeping. <laughs> In what way did it change your life, though, in the in the oh, long term? I mean, 
bits and bobs before, little jobs and that, but you know, the world of little, I love little jobs like this. You know, a little chit-chat with someone. And then little funny things. I was in Hello magazine. And every now and then I do little telly jobs. And I love that. That's always a bit jealous of Lee in his little jobs. And now I've got little jobs. I don't want a big job. <laughs> and then people, people are nicer to you, I found out, if you're a little bit famous. And famous people are much nicer to you. It's really <laughs> weird. I can't describe it. That's terrible. <laughs> what is? Well, the, the fact that uh, what you're saying is that fame has an importance and also famous people are only interested in famous people. So that's... They're not interested, but they're kind of a little bit, I've noticed, a little bit nicer to you than they probably would have been before. And now, especially because I've moved to a new town, it's like really weird. I mean, a few weeks ago, I was sitting outside a cafe and someone drove past, opened the window and screamed out, you're the woman in the painting! <laughs> oh, that's fantastic, though. Yeah, but as Lee says, any attention's good attention. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're in St Leonard's, aren't you? And in a sense, yeah. your life has, in a way, gone full circle. So you are now giving art classes... Yes. You are now an artist yourself. Yes. What? Tell me about your art classes, because I heard that you do sort of life art and you have a guest. Yeah, well, it started off in, do you know Wayne Shire is another old nightclubber? He's got several pubs here. So I started off doing the art class in there. And then, of course, COVID came, so it was lockdown. And at first I thought, oh, fantastic, got nothing to do. How lovely is that? But after a couple of weeks, I was dead broad. And then people around here are very creative and they're always starting things and doing things and it's really nice. And then this boy I know started a thing called um, Isolation Station Hastings, which was like a local television station with various programmes on. And they said, oh, you can do your art class online. I went, oh, all right then, okay. And um, I started off the first one, I, just, I was the model, because it was weird, you couldn't see the people talking. They could send messages, but you couldn't see them. And so, well, I can't model every week. I thought, I know what, I'll ask a friend. So I got various friends. So they set up the camera in their house, me in my house. Then I interviewed them while people drew them. Then at the same time, people could put questions, send questions in, and they'd come up on the bottom of the screen so I could read out questions. It was lovely. It was nice because I got to know some of my friends a bit better. And I asked people I didn't know so well, found out their business. It was a mix of local people. And then we had people from abroad do it as well. And... um it all came out very nice. And we just had a, because of COVID, we we were going to have an exhibition. It kept being put up. But there was a big exhibition in the local museum of all the paintings that people did in it. And then people came and they hadn't actually met each other before. So it was really lovely because they could meet the models in real life and then the other people doing the drawings. So it was a bit emotional. It was a bit emotional. So, you know, as I said, it's like a sort of full circle thing that you've come back to something yeah. that you were interested in. When you were very young, and then you went off into the nightclub scene. Sorry, I was trained to be an art teacher, then I finally became one forty years afterwards. <laughs> yeah, and and I think there's some sort of beauty in that, and it also sort of shows that the, and I don't know whether you agree with this, but the events in your life and the people that you knew did have an impact on you um, eventually. What what would you sum up that? impact and the value of those people that you've met in your life 
Uh, what I always, if I sign up to do talks at colleges and things like that, and my advice is to everyone, go out, get drunk and meet people. Because I think that's the, it's all very well being marvellously talented. If you don't know anyone, you're not going to get anywhere. It really is who you know. And those people inspire me. Then they do things. You think, oh, that's interesting. Then they ask me to do something, help them and that. And it's so lovely to that so my friend, the ones who haven't died are all really successful and doing well, especially into our 60s, which you wouldn't think. I mean, when I was a child, I wanted to be well, this, that writer, fashion designer, artist. It's all happened since I'm 60. Well, you know, I'm glad it has. If it had when I was young, I'd have been a complete monster. <laughs> now, your book um, oh, has been... The rights for the book of, about Lee Bowery have been picked up a few times. Yes. Get made into a film. Well, it's a constant source of a little bit of income. People keep buying it. Matt Lucas has it at one time. But um, it's actually, has someone got it at the moment? And there is a script, which I haven't yet seen. This has been going on for years. And I think it's with the BFI at the moment being looked at. So, but in January, I was told I'd see the script in four weeks. It's now the end of August and I still haven't seen it. So, I don't, and I don't ask, because if it's something important, they'll tell me, do you know what I mean? So whatever's going on, it all goes on behind my back. But I'm, I don't like to stick my nose in, so leave it to them. And if it's something good, it'll happen. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's always someone else will want to buy those rights. If <laughs> it does more... happen, who would play you? Well, I've seen someone, but I don't like to say, because it has been discussed. <laughs> no, it's an actress who was in a film by Richard Billington, but I'm not saying that. I mean, don't think she's famous, but she's quite like me. But who knows? Well, she might, I might actually get made. She'll probably be 70 herself. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sue Tilly, it's been wonderful talking to you. And, and um, also, you know, some of the memories are also, of course, close to my heart and memories of for me. So it's been um, a really great experience. And I just love the fact that you... A, look so well, and you still got your humour and charm, and you are exactly the same person who I used to bump into. <laughs> and, in so are you. and was a little bit terrified of. Terrified <laughs> of me? No, you and Julia, was it Julia? Yeah, you were like the terrible twos. Well, she's moved here now. She's here as well. <laughs> I was out with her on day before yesterday. <laughs> we're going to haunt the Leonard's now. You will. You will take over some letters. Well, listen, thanks very much. It's lovely to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I hope I see you in real life at one point again. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, 
Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers. And while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.